The Athletic. Hi there and welcome to The Athletic Football Podcast weekend preview as we look ahead to match day two in the Premier League. I'm Adam Leventhal, back at the Athletics HQ in London. We are here every Friday to set up yourselves for the weekend's action. With me this week, we have rotated our lineup. We'll come to the, the mainstay so far. Nick Miller is back. How are you? Raring to go? Very well. I assume I was so uh, undroppable last weekend. Or are there just no other options? You were undroppable, but you were also in the building as well. So, <laughs> so take, Crucially, take of yeah. that what you will. Built, I've built a career about, out of just being there, essentially. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back. It's Thanks. good to have you back. And we'll talk about your uh, Monday column a little bit later on mm. as well. I enjoyed that. Uh, also in the building today and in the studio, Art de Rocher. How are you? Our Arsenal reporter. I'm good, thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thanks for having me. I hope, again, I'll try and be in the office <laughs> as as much as possible um, so I can kind of rack up some more appearances. Um, but yeah, g- glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on board. And Tim Spears, who many, many people will know from the uh, the Daily Football Briefing. the great voice, show. The voice of it. it is a great show. I play a very small part, but you are the, you're the you're the big gun in charge. Michael of it. Bailey's brilliant. Let's, Michael let's Bailey. Let's talk well. about Michael Bailey, yeah. by the way. Uh, yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well, very well. All is good. Um, ready to look ahead to the weekend's action. I mentioned it in the first time we did this show last week. I just wanted to run through the formation of fixtures uh, for the week. It's a one-five-two-one formation uh, this week. Uh, that's Forest Sheffield United on Friday. Fulham, Brentford, Liverpool, Bournemouth, Wolves, Brighton, Tottenham, Manchester United and Manchester City, Newcastle on Saturday. On Sunday, it's Villa, Everton and then West Ham, Chelsea. And then the Monday night football is Palace against Arsenal. No Luton, Burnley, of course. Their ground, Luton, not ready as yet. Um, Let's get stuck in to Manchester City, first of all. They won the Super Cup this week. They beat Sevilla on penalties out in Greece. Here comes Goodell. Manchester City have won the Super Cup in dramatic... Having already been clinical against Burnley on the opening weekend, they've made it four trophies for 2023. Um, There has been some talk about the impact that Kevin De Bruyne's absence is going to have on them, potentially going to be out all the way until the new year. No Gundogan, no Mares either. So Nick, just give us a little reality check on this, because it's almost as if people are hoping desperately that Manchester City are going to be weaker. Are you on that page? Do you see them as weaker already? I think I'm sort of on the page of hoping they'd be a bit weaker, not for any immediate dislike of Manchester City and their fine fans, but more just desperate for some kind of variety and some kind of title race that doesn't feel like it's over by March. But yeah, they're sort of, on an individual level, it looks like they are slightly weaker. Riyad Mahrez hasn't been directly replaced, but Carl Palmer looks like he's kind of stepping up into that role. Gondouin's been replaced by Kovacic, which feels like a bit of a downgrade. Uh, Laporte is probably going to leave, replaced by Guardiol. We, we're not, Guardiol looks like a brilliant player, but um, that's obviously still a little bit uh, uncertain. Um, and then the obvious thing is Kevin De Bruyne's injury, going to be out for a little while. 
and they haven't got a replacement. There isn't really a replacement for Kevin De Bruyne. You're not going to buy anyone who's going to be uh, as good as him. So it, it does, in theory, feel like they are a bit weaker, but I don't know if that is hope over reality. And Tim, on, on the issue of, of De Bruyne missing, obviously then that potentially has a knock-on effect on the amount of goals that uh, Erling Haaland might be able mm. to score. I think it was 13 of Haaland's 52 goals last season that he assisted in. So, I mean, where do you stand on on this? Do you think that the, the creativity of the team is, is definitely going to struggle? Or do you think Pep Guardiola, as many people would expect, will have some sort of other plan, some sort of other answer? He'll have a plan, but you can't replace De Bruyne with anyone else in that squad. And, you know, I think hi- history tells us, it's not just that we all hate City, despite what Nick says. You know, it's not it's not just that we all want a title race. I think history does tell us that it'll, it will be more difficult for them this year. You know, no no club has ever won four in a row before. So uh, the, 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 there's that history against them. But also, I think we, what we saw with Liverpool last year, how going for four trophies knackered them, ex- you know, completely mentally and physically. And coming on the back of what was the longest season, you know, in everybody's memory, it'll be extremely tough for a smaller squad and a squad with arguably less quality to reproduce what what they did last year. And I think if you take away Gundogan, you take away De Bruyne for four months. Yes, Haaland is still there and looking in great form, but he obviously relies on service. And if that service, you know, they're what they're one or two injuries away in that in that creative line from from looking pretty short and I think you know you you look at how Sir Alex regenerated his teams I'm not sure we're quite seeing Pep's vision just yet and this might be a bit of a sticky year where they have to take a step down before they get back up again which is what of course Sir Alex did at Man United you know many times they had dips where they would miss out on a title or two it just it just feels like it's going that way for me and that might just be absolute rubbish Um, (laughs) but but also the, the chasing pack of all I th- you can see examples certainly at Arsenal, certainly at Chelsea, although they've got a lot of ground to make up. Probably at Man United, where they had they have definitely improved. You say with their recruitment. So if they- if they keep a fit squad and keep their levels of last year, they will get closer to City and potentially Newcastle as mm. well, who they take on uh, this weekend off the back of that five-one hammering of of Aston Villa. This is going to be a genuine test of of Manchester City in comparison with an easy win against Burnley on the opening weekend. I mean, Newcastle have got their tails up and they'll, they'll fancy it, won't they? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Villa possibly, uh, although I think everyone expects them to be pretty decent this season, provided an example of how not to play against Newcastle with that kind of absurd high defensive line that Newcastle just kind of strolled through whenever they wanted to. Villa also obviously uh, had to deal with Tyrone Mings' injury, um, so uh, while Newcastle were brilliant, it's that's probably not uh, a a sort of um, you're not going to see that kind of thing every week. And they will obviously th- th- this is it's quite a good game for the for the rest of us to have Newcastle play straight after a game like that because it's like well okay how how good are you actually in terms of the you know there's there is a huge debate about the big six and and all that sort of stuff. Is it a I mean. Do we do we have to include Newcastle in that in that top seven now, or or has someone dropped out? <laughs> have we still got a big six? Do we have a magnificent seven? Do we have you know what what do we call it now? Yeah, it's an interesting I guess discussion point because now I'm I'm slightly leaning towards almost ab- abolishing is the wrong word. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> I have no idea have that kind of power. What else yeah. can you do? This is good, <laughs> but almost just. Um, 
yeah, leaving that kind of terminology behind, really, because when you look at last season, you've got Brighton as well. Uh, we mentioned Villa, obviously they were kind of embarrassed on the opening day, but those teams are also, I feel, going to be a lot more competitive, especially Brighton, who've just <laughs> come into a lot of money uh, with Caicedo going to Chelsea. So I think there's room for a lot more competition with those Champions League places in particular. With Newcastle, I really do think they can push for an even better season than last year, um, not just because of their recruitment, but also it feels like just as a club, they're on a similar t- trajectory to the one that Arsenal were on um, maybe a couple of seasons ago where there were just a few different aspects of their game maybe that deserves a little uh, tweak and then they're really able to cause problems for teams so for me (laughs) I'd actually like it to be maybe eight teams who are possibly able to qualify for the Champions League because I think there is that quality there in the in the top half of the table. What would we well, what's, call the what's that? Yeah, yeah, what is that? The, f- uh, the, um, the fluctuate. Oh, fluctuate. Nice. Is that, does that work? That, and that a, leaves room for for clubs to come in and out. The fluctuate. Maybe. Yeah. It's also it's lame, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it's it's sort of sounds it'll like, do. It'll do. It sounds like the name of a sort of East London creative agency. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good, good thing. I, suppose, I wanted to get this back on Newcastle because Tonali's debut against Aston Villa was was just all action. Scored a great goal, and he just looks like he's just he's a perfect fit in front of the the Geordies. Yeah, he does. I think I think it'd be a real fans favorite and you can really see a, a team starting to form with him in it now you know you I think you look at some rough edges last season but they, but they managed to um, generate a, a, an exceptional defense from nowhere really um, but now you look at people like uh, obviously Botman Bruno Isaac Tonali uh, Trippier you know th- these, these are guys that are there for the next sort of three four years and, and can go into the Champions League in the later stage of the Champions League you know with them um, Tonali definitely fits that bracket. I think he'll be one of the signings of the summer. Just so, also wanted to double check that we all saw where Tonali celebrated his debut performance. Uh, in uh, Weatherspoons. Weatherspoons. <laughs> yes, I so, that. Did, did anyone get to the bottom of who had stitched him up, or was it just a, uh, an oversight that he booked a table at Weatherspoons, or was someone actually done in there? Just, he just enjoys reasonably priced onion rings. Who knows? <laughs> and no music. No music. No, 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 no. And weird kind of hypnotic carpets. Um, if you want to hear more about Newcastle, more importantly, uh, you can check out the Pod on the Tyne podcast, which is out for you each week. Hello, Taylor Payne here, host of The Athletic's Newcastle United podcast, Pod on the Tyne. We're back and bringing you double bubble this season with two shows a week. So join myself, George Cock and Chris Wolf, and Jacob Whitehead as we dissect all the thrills and spills around NUFC, including the return of Champions League football at St James's Park for the first time in two decades. Just search for Pod on the Tyne wherever you get your podcasts and hit follow and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
So that Man City-Newcastle game is an 8 o'clock kickoff in the UK. Prior to that, at 5.30, it is Tottenham against Manchester United. United are unbeaten in five games against Spurs since that random 6-1 Spurs win at Old Trafford, which happened during lockdown and feels like years and years and years and years ago, another lifetime ago. Um, Tottenham fans witnessed their first competitive game of, uh, of Ange ball. Oh, God, I, I, get, don't I, get, don't. I get... I get... Why do we do it? Why you're, do we do you're, it? You're better than that. You I, yeah. Postacoglu ball. That's better, isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, why do, why do we insist on balling everything? Why, why do we do it to ourselves? But Arsenal it, fans have been doing it for a while. Like, Wenger ball goes back years. I don't know. I'm, I'm a fan of it, but I know... I, there was a well, sharp intake well, of breath there. It's, it's, I don't know what it was based on well, it's, there, it's, it's very similar to, to gate, isn't it? It's, it's very yes. similar to the scanner. You call it gate, and this is ball. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that my all-time hero, Steve Ball, was not a successful <laughs> football manager because that would just... Ball, 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 ball would just be terrible. Okay, yeah. well, it, look, it's let, let's just stick with it for now with Ange Ball, right? Um, in terms of interactions with, with Ange... You, you got to know him. Is he, uh, is he called no, you? I, is he called you mate? No, yet? I haven't actually attended a game yet. Uh, Saturday will be my first. Right, uh, but I'm looking forward to him calling me mate because yeah. I think he does that with everybody. I won't. I won't feel particularly honoured. Um, no. But I, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And yeah. what what do you make of of how he has settled in? Obviously, he's got through the the big hoo ha with with Harry Kane. Obviously, we discussed that on on last week's uh, weekend preview. But but in terms of the football that he's already put in place in pre season, but in that opening game against Brentford as well, it seems to be like it's going to be it's going to be fun. It's going to be entertaining. Yeah, he's he's the antidote to last season in, in so many ways. Um, and what happened with Harry Kane highlighted one of them because of the way he handled it in public. And he was very much, you know, well, we were planning for this, um, and then so, someone kind of asked him, right, who's on your shopping list to replace Kane? He was like, well. It's not a bloody shopping list for the supermarket. Sorry, where's just, he from? Sourbridge. Just, just, just gonna stop. <laughs> anyway, so he was saying, "Oh, it's not like it's not like my my wife's just giving me a shopping list to go to the supermarket. Like it doesn't work like that, mate." Yeah, yeah. At the end of it, and as far as his football goes, I mean, yeah, it was the same score two two as last season at Brentford, but it just couldn't be any more different. And I think that they are by far the the, the least recognisable team compared to last season. I mean, it's just. <laughs> more than Chelsea, more than Chelsea. Do you yeah, think? I think so. Certainly, in terms of style of football, you know, Chelsea still managed to play some good football. Spurs did not manage that really last year at all. Yeah, you know, it was it was tedious. It was awful. And the fact that we're having this this conversation about you know optimism in terms of Arsenal, uh, not Arsenal. I'm looking at you, Art. I'm thinking of <laughs> Arsenal of Tottenham's attacking prowess. Um, you know, I, I will ask you about this. You know, yeah. we're, we're talking about that having taken out the goals of of Harry Kane in terms of how you see them as a, as a proposition when you take out the the connections that Kane had in particular with with Son do you think that it's it's possible to to spread that load and and in this new approach actually have a, a prosperous season it definitely is i don't think any one team will just be reliant on one man i know that's being said after we've spoken about Erling Haaland but when you look at Tottenham's performance especially I just couldn't take my eyes off James Madison I was I was so like why has he gone there <laughs> um, but and he came on, close to go well relatively close to, to going to Arsenal didn't he yeah uh, a couple of seasons yeah. ago yeah but when you see how he's able to knit things together and also just make decisions really quickly yeah I think those players who are able to just 
change change a game in a in a moment as as Tim said you can't teach that and you sometimes you just need someone who can unlock a door so I think they've got um at least the basis of of that with with Madison with Son Kulazewski as well the the other thing that stood out on Sunday was Madison's set pieces which if you are trying to teach a group of players a new way of playing after a fairly grim few years and you're trying to create a team that's going to replace the goals of Harry Kane having someone who's good at set pieces is like a, is a not an easy thing but it, it's a incredibly useful thing to have let's talk about their opponents Manchester United and they they look really flat and they were lucky let's let's I mean be brutally honest they were lucky to get their win against Wolves considering that controversial non-penalty uh, decision which has been discussed at length across the board Tim Spears who is has got Wolves loyalties is, is shaking his head still <laughs> still can't still furious. can't believe it can you absolutely livid yeah I, I you know I covered Wolves for sort of six seven years so I sort of stopped becoming a fan and after a year last year where I was sort of like, mm, this is a bit weird, I was I was really into it on Monday yeah. night and I was absolutely furious. I couldn't sleep for a while. Yeah. So angry. But I did cons- I did finally get to sleep by consoling myself that we wouldn't have scored the penalty anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, let's concentrate on the, however interesting Wolves is, let's concentrate on, on the Manchester United side of things because that was the most sort of remarkable thing about the game that, that they didn't really show against a, a side in Wolves that you would expect to maybe be a little bit disillusioned or a little bit off it. They didn't seem to impose themselves at all, did they, United? No, it was very disjointed, both with and without the ball, I thought. And we've spoken earlier about how it's easier to build your team from, I guess, the foundation of your defence. But in front of that, you need to have quality as well and quality that can connect with each other. And it just seemed too easy for Wolves to just break through that midfield. And as we say, it was really lucky that Cunha just couldn't find the back of the net somehow. Um, And going forward, I think that's probably Ten Hag's biggest, I guess, issue to solve. Um, How do you get that midfield to work together? Because Casemiro is a great, um, I guess, number six, has been for years. But then how does he then link up with Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandes it doesn't seem like a a midfield that would be in sync with or without the ball so I'm just yeah wondering about how the setup of that midfield actually works for the rest of the season. There was a lot of attention on on Mason Mount's debut and it didn't quite click did did you have sympathy for for him in a in a in a human way that you know on your big day it doesn't quite work out. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, he's he's not a player who's who came from a you know little team. Uh, he, yeah. he's come from Chelsea. He's not like suddenly going to be impressed with a you know shiny dressing room and a big stadium or anything. But yeah, I, I, I suppose so. The thing he's always been one of those players who a succession of managers put in their team and really like, but divides opinion a lot from fans who don't quite see what he's at or useful for so I, I kind of already have a little bit of sympathy for him in that respect in that he he gets uh, how you know how, how much these this these things get through to players you never really know but he already seems to get a lot of slightly unwarranted abuse for someone who's objectively a, a really good player it'll be fascinating to see then how Ange ball against the sort of staleness of, of uh, Ten Hag ball 
in that opening game. God. Uh, <laughs> I've sort of I've overballed myself. Um, and there'll be much more analysis on our two dedicated podcasts on Tottenham View from the Lane and also Manchester United Talk of the Devils, as always, on The Athletic. Hi everybody, I'm Danny Kelly, host of the Athletics' dedicated Spurs podcast, The View from the Lane. Join me, Charlie Eccleshare, James Moore, Tim Spears and Jack Pitbrook who promises to be yet another rollercoaster season in N17. Will Ange Postacoglu bring back attacking football to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Every Monday and Thursday, we'll bring you top analysis from the best journalists in the game, as well as razor-sharp insight, it says here, and of course, all the usual view from the lane, gaffes and gags. Come on, you Spurs. Disguise the pass beautifully! Finished beautifully by Alessio Rosso! So we've dealt with the, the big games on Saturday, and then when people wake up on Sunday, their main focus in England is going to be the Lionesses taking on Spain in the World Cup final. Uh, Art, I just wanted a quick word with you because you've covered a lot of uh, women's football. You've had a lot of focus uh, on the Lionesses as well. I mean, we all know it's a, it's a massive achievement in terms of how they now try and deconstruct that Spain team. That's It's going to be a tough task, isn't it? It'll be tough, but not impossible. I think the fact that Japan really wiped the floor of them um, earlier on in the tournament would be a real, I guess, source of inspiration for England because in that game, Spain was Spain. They had the ball for the majority of the game, but Japan was so incisive in their counter-attacks that it didn't matter. They had four shots and scored four goals. So I think when England are preparing for that game, they can look there and see, okay, maybe we're not going to have the ball the whole time, but especially with uh, Alessio Russo's goals in the quarterfinals and semifinals, they know they have an outlet in her and then also Lauren Hemp as well. So I think the main benefit for England is they have a lot of different ways to threaten teams, which personally for me, I think uh, should put them in good stead for uh, a really competitive game on Sunday. Quick prediction from you. I'll go 2-1 England. 2-1 England. Tim, what are you going for? England on penalties, I think. England on penalties. Okay. I can't can't, can't do it again. Uh, I think England win narrowly, maybe 1-0. Okay, right. We shall see what happens. And there will, of course, uh, be much more coverage on The Athletic and... You can always tune in to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast with the likes of uh, Michelle Owen, Michael Cox for the best analysis as well, Charlotte Harper, who's out in Oz as well. So after England win the World Cup, uh, you'll be able to get stuck back into the the Premier League action. You've got Villa against Everton and then uh, West Ham against Chelsea. In the last episode, we were discussing the battle between Chelsea and Liverpool for Moises Caicedo and Romeo Lavia. Um, well, Chelsea, surprise, surprise, they they won again and hoovered up both of them. But they did actually get turned down by Michael Elise, which was which was actually quite quite encouraging to it's see. In enormously a reassuring yeah. that they can't <laughs> just kind of take it whoever they want. Although I, I say that being a Forest yeah. fan, who and they're the next on their list. They're coming. Yeah, there's apparently Brennan Johnson. So yeah. yeah. 
yeah so we will um we'll see how many more signings Chelsea make but yeah they didn't they didn't get Michael Elise um but it's going to be it's going to be an interesting battle between uh, West Ham and Chelsea and I know Tim mentioned about the fact that you know Tottenham are unrecognizable you look at that Chelsea side now and you think okay okay cool yeah I know I know who you are I didn't realize you're all here now <laughs> playing for playing for Chelsea but it, it's it's exciting it's it's interesting but it still feels like a gamble you compared them to what, what did you say last week about I said they spent 215 million pounds on condiments condiments yeah well, they... do, have you have you revised that view after seeing how they performed against against Liverpool uh not necessarily see how they performed because they were still sort of that they still seemed a bit insubstantial but 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 since then they have signed two quite substantial midfielders some kind of potatoes to go with the uh, (laughs) condiments perhaps but in terms of what Chelsea are actually doing and this is a bit of a hot potato pass to to anyone who wants to try and sort of pull it apart obviously the the big talk is how are they doing this in terms of FFP uh, Simon Johnson Liam Toomey have both written a, a great piece just trying to explain it and why all this maybe scaremongering about, oh, you know, they're going to get done, they're not going to be able to carry on and all this sort of stuff. They did explain it very, very well. It's available on on The Athletic that, yes, they're stretching out long contracts and also they are selling a lot of players as well. So they're trying to sort of balance the books in in that way. Do you think it's just something that people are just trying to make as a, as a stick to beat them with? And it's it's maybe tinged with a bit, bit of jealousy as well? Mm. I don't know about jealousy. Possibly it's that that kind of thing. Well, not Forest because you sign you know hundreds of players anyway. So. <laughs> well, not this summer. <laughs> no, not this summer. Um, but I, I, there's there's, there's an, I think there's always an element with Chelsea where um, people will think uh, they you know they're, they're historically they've spent a lot of money, so therefore it would be quite funny if that failed. But I think I think the interesting thing about the way Chelsea have kind of operated since. Todd Bowley and, and Chums arrived is that they seem to be approaching building a, a football team like financial investors would because mm. they've they've bought uh, well a lot of them have been very very expensive they've bought a lot of young players um, who theoretically will be worth more in the future appreciating value yada yada, yada without a huge amount of thought to how they might actually that, that might actually work as a football team certainly until they signed. Uh, Caicedo and, and, and Lavia um, so I, I think one of the the, the the big things that I wonder about them is how they, they, they have a few experienced players you know Raheem Sterling counts as that now I guess even though well, how is he 28 something like that 27 28 um, Thiago Silva obviously other than that it's an incredibly young team um, so you, you kind of wonder how all those young players will actually work as a functioning football team rather than a, a collection of investments running around on the field. How do you think, I mean, obviously, Lavia and Caicedo aren't going to play both at the same time, sort of piggybacking each other. Um, it will probably be one one or the other. How do you think that that will improve Chelsea as an offering? Just give them more solidity in that midfield. When we were talking about Manchester United earlier, you have, I guess, a midfield of players who are very different but not particularly complementary to each other. I think here you will probably get more of a working midfield, say Enzo Fernandez, great on the ball. The others, Caicedo, a lot more, I guess, athletic and able to get around the pitch. So maybe those two could work as a, a nice pair to kind of offset a more a more attacking player. With Lavia, I, I watched him a couple of times last year 
And despite being really young, he just seemed really assured in himself, I felt, um, especially at the Emirates when Southampton drew free all. Um, so I think it's really, I guess, an interesting time for them to see what works for their midfield and how uh, Pochettino wants them to, to move forward because there are now pieces to the puzzle that are there. You just have to make sure the right ones <laughs> are, are kind of combining with each other. Yeah, and it is also, um, Nick mentioned it last week as well, that you know having those experienced players to, to carry through the, the youngsters as well is, is really important. Um, Tim, on, on West Ham, they've had to make some alterations, obviously, try to, to fill the, the void left by Declan Rice. And, and they all seem to have now woken up and, and realised that the transfer window is open and they needed to get their business done. Obviously, the Harry Maguire situation, I know that's not uh, impacting on the, on the midfield. That has sort of stalled and that's not happening. But they've managed to bring in James Ward-Prowse, uh, Edson Alvarez as well from, from Ajax. So... They seem to have done the job in that in that midfield, so it's going to be an interesting battle. Yeah, I mean, they they needed obviously to replace Declan Rice probably with two players, which which is what they've done. I still don't think they've quite replaced the attributes that they've they've lost from from selling him. Um, Ward Prowse is, is a good player to bring in. I can see why they wanted Maguire as well. You know, there, there aren't many leaders in that in that group. Too many obvious leaders to me anyway, and I feel like Ward Prowse will kind of fill. That whole left by Rice and then someone like Mark Noble before him has, has been like you know the, the the figurehead of the club. He's 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 that kind of player, and I think um, I think it's a really smart addition. But I do worry about West Ham. I mean, they had an awful summer um, in terms of yeah. No do you st- really worry about West Ham? No. <laughs> you hope that you hope that they're going to have for the a purposes difficult- of this show. <laughs> I, I do worry. Yeah, I worry about West Ham. You, but, you, re, but when we stop recording, I won't think about it again fine, until okay. I'm next asked on a podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> I can see why people would worry about West Ham. Yeah. Outside of a podcast yeah. setting. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they had a horrible summer with no signings coming in until this week. And obviously, Rice left. Uh, some, some important backroom staff members left as well. Uh, they had some awful pre season results. And it really burst the bubble. Of oh, the um, oh, very good. <laughs> of the you know win the European trophy like they did you know two months ago. And for people that aren't necessarily familiar and haven't watched um, Lucas Paquetá play for for West Ham, why are Manchester City so keen on him? Interesting question. I mean, he's he's obviously. I, I think they were interested in him before De Bruyne got injured. I can't quite the, the time loses all meaning when the, in the transfer window, so I can't quite remember. Um, so it's not like they're. They're sort of going for a direct re- replacement yeah. for him. I kind of, I'm not. I, I've never really been quite sure about Paquetá. I mean, he, he obviously plays for Brazil, um, and but I remember him being quite underwhelming for large spells of last season. Which I don't know whether that's more a comment on West Ham than um, than him individually. I also think it's quite funny that, as it turns out, this enormously underwhelming, quite often quite grim team domestically, at least last season were apparently running around with two hundred million pounds in their midfield with, you know, Declan Rice and, and Pakitar. So yeah, I I I did wonder what slight felt was a slightly unusual not not unusual but slightly surprising target for Manchester City. I mean if theoretically he has a lot of the qualities that you would fit in that city team. You know, very good on the ball, very good, sort of decent goal scoring um record and so on, but yeah, I wasn't wasn't sh- quite sure, but but to go back to what we were saying before, 
you just to sort of assume that Manchester City and Pep Guardiola know something that we don't. Yeah, so. they've seen something. Yeah. It'll be polished up and then it'll be worth 200 million in, yeah. in two years' time. Um, and Chelsea will probably buy him. Um, if you want to know more about uh, Chelsea and in particular that that spending and just trying to explain it if you're if you're getting a little bit hot under the collar and you think how are they doing that um, do check out the earlier episode of the Athletic Football Podcast uh, this week featuring uh, David Ornstein uh, Simon Johnson James Pierce as well joined Ayo Akinwalari uh, just to go deeper into all of that so check that one out Right let's talk about the the bookends of the um, the Premier League weekend uh, will kick off only briefly um, with Nottingham Forest against Sheffield United. Nick, you've got a couple of seconds to 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 sell that one for us. Uh, okay, well, it, thanks, it, Nick. So let's talk about <laughs> no, go on, just far away. It's just absolutely needless. <laughs> well, I mean, first thing is you won't be able to watch it. It's not, despite it being on Friday night, it's not on TV. It's only on Friday night because of clash with a cricket match at Trent Bridge. Um, but uh, if I was going to sell it to you, sell it to you as a bit of a local rivalry. And uh, technically, Leicester and Forest are should be um, bigger rivals. But there's been uh, dates back to a, a few kind of quite spicy games in the early 2000s. But uh, Forest and Sheffield United really don't like each other. So uh, if I was going to sell it to you, it's two clubs that hate each other, and that's always good fun. Okay, good. Yeah, well, that's 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 quite a good good sell. Um, let's talk about a better game, which is coming up on um, Monday, uh, which is Crystal Palace against Arsenal. Um, and obviously, the, the the news that that Crystal Palace have managed to keep Elise is going to sort of buoy the fans, and they'll be they'll be full of vim and vigor as per usual at Selhurst Park. Um, the big talking point for Arsenal is a player that you know they're going to be missing, and that is Urien uh, Timber. Recently arrived from Ajax, he's going to be out for a hell of a long time, and that's a that's a big hit. As when you think about the careful planning and recruitment, and then you lose a player like that, it's a big blow, isn't it? It's major because not only did he tick the boxes Arsenal were looking for uh, when they went to recruit him, but he actually added more on top of that. He came in and he was primarily going to be uh, a right back, very similar to Ben White, who's able to play centre back as well, but then magically it seemed in America they used him as a left back and he performed really well to the point where you wouldn't really care that he's a right-footed player playing there. He was able to just really show personality in his play uh, on the ball and make it seem easy. So um, to not have him going going into the rest of the season, um, the big... I guess blow is that now Arsenal are almost where they were last season before they recruited him because now their their kind of foundation is um is not as strong but I think going into um this weekend it's, it's almost massive that it's on a Monday night because they hopefully have an extra few days to get Alexander Zinchenko fit hopefully um for the game because of course he was the, the main left back last season and you'd hope that he'd be able to slot in um, in place of Timber who again was exceptional um, in his first month at Arsenal and hopefully hopefully fingers crossed he doesn't lose any of what made him special or seem special anyway um, in in his first month at the club. And Crystal Palace, Tim, they've managed to keep hold of of Elise, which is great. They've got Eze. I know they don't have Zahar anymore, um, <clears throat> but they they can still 
do damage to to teams and do you see them being in any danger this season do you think Roy will just sort of have them steady eddying them way to you know 14th 13th uh, yeah I, I do see them being in a bit of trouble I'm not, I'm not sure where not sure where the goals come from unless unless they sort of have you know that sort of handbrake off uh, run that they had at the end of last season I don't see that continuing into this season and becoming the new norm for Palace under Hodgson and I think you know if, if they do get in in a bit of trouble then it's it's a really tricky one for the players because they know the manager isn't hanging around and we know how they can sort of soon down tools they've only made a couple of additions they've lost Zaha really important to keep Elise um, I th- you know you, you look at their bench they have not got a, a plethora of options and this summer they've only sort of brought in Jefferson Lerma uh, and Matthias Franco who's a young young Brazilian midfielder he's only 19 so yeah I um I, I, yeah, I, I'm not quite as worried as I say I am about West Ham, but I'm, I'm, I'm slightly worried for, for the Crystal Palace. This is great. It's been great just to, to have you all in here, but to, to see Tim just trying to sort of drag other teams down, <laughs> just drag West Ham into it, Crystal Palace into it. Nick, quick word about your um, your column out on Monday if people missed it last week. Yeah, uh, the briefing, it's, it's kind of three of the biggest... Um, Questions or issues to arise from uh, that weekend last week required a sort of slightly frantic late rewrite because uh, it was uh, after the news that um, Chelsea had agreed deal for uh, Casado. But yeah, that'll be out on Monday morning. Check it out. And we need better better VAR decisions this weekend. We can't we can't go on with with all of this nonsense, can we? Tim, do you want to ask Art? <laughs> <laughs> But it's 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 remarkable that you you know players kick into gear, they hit the season running, they they show their best stuff, and then the the referees and the officials have a, a bit of a, a bit of a mare to be brutally honest. I mean, the most frustrating frustrating thing is, okay, you can have an apology, but that that doesn't give you the one point you would have had. Or... Replay games. We have to start <laughs> replaying games. We have to start doing it, don't we? Or or that apology or that decision has to be made in game. And at the end of the game, there is some sort of opportunity to 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 get that point. The in-game apology is a sensational concept. Yeah. Where the referee just says... <laughs> March start, they get sent off yeah. and replaced. There you go. There's, a, there's an idea. Get it done. Right, anyway, we've digressed right at the end there and we've gone in on officials. Probably shouldn't have done that, but we have. Tim, thank you very much. Cheers. Art, thank you. Thank you. And Nick, thanks to you again. Thank you. Ayo Akamulari is going to be back next week. I'll be back next Friday. Your producer today was John Rogers with the assistance of Mike Stavrou and Adam Jones as well. Proper backroom staff on this podcast. Executive producer up in the stands uh, with an earpiece in was uh, A.D. Moorhead as well. Uh, If you've liked what you've heard, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic. You can sign up right now for just $1.99 a month for an entire year at theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. The Athletic.